His murder shocked the nation. The horrific image of a child beaten at the hands of his murderers distorted beyond recognition. The child who barely turned 14 years old accused of whistling at a white woman was another victim of the hate that permeated white society in the Mississippi Delta. Many of the civil rights activists who were part of the civil rights movement called themselves the Emmett Till generation. They knew it could happen to them, and so they struck back at the injustices they saw all around them to make sure it never happened again. This is Loki Mulholland, and it's time to get uncomfortable. Well, today we're joined by my co-host, Freedom Rider, LeVon Brown. LeVon, how you doing? All right, Loki, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. We've got uh, Devery Anderson joining us. Glad to be here. We truly appreciate it. So Devery is the author of Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement, which is really the, the quintessential, I always tell people it's the Bible of, of Emmett Till, but it's the quintessential work of about Emmett Till. So Debbie, just real quick, just, just give us a little background about your book and, and the work you did on that. Well, the book, I wanted to write, I wanted to write the book that I always wanted to read on Emmett Till. And I always wanted to read a book that told the, the whole story in, in excruciating detail because I felt those details were often lost in various tellings of the story and um, and that they were important, that they added not just real life drama to the story, but just important detail that you needed to fully understand what happened then, why the interest remained, why there was this resurgence uh, of interest in the early 2000s and what led to the investigation that happened in 2004 to 2006 and so I just thought all of that was just very important to know and so I spent uh, 10 years researching and writing the book by going to Mississippi and Chicago several times I interviewed everybody who, who would talk to me uh, that included uh, witnesses uh, such as Emmett Till's cousins who were there uh, at the store incident as well as the kidnapping Willie Reed, who was the one witness who heard the beating in the shed and saw Emmett Till on the back of the truck. He was one who was able to place the location of the, of the murder. And I interviewed journalists who covered the trial who were still living and lucid enough to talk and uh, other participants at the trial or witnesses, spectators at the trial, just anybody. I tried to get a hold of uh, Carolyn Bryant. I tried to uh, talked to family members of Milam and Bryant, um, got a few people to talk to me. Um, they were hesitant, so I couldn't quote them, use their name in the book, but I used them as confidential sources, so I was able to, to get more information than I thought I was going to be able to. So mm -hmm. I tried to be thorough. I spent, did a lot of archival research, and after that 10 years of researching and writing, uh, produced this book that was published in 2015 upon the 60th anniversary of the murder. Wow. And we're coming up on the anniversary of that murder, as a matter of fact, with uh, August 28th, you know, today being August uh, 14th. But uh, the, 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 the title on your book is, is the, you know, that propelled the civil rights movement. Not that the civil rights movement weren't necessarily already taking place. Uh, there's always been a movement. But to propel it, and where many people like, you know, just John Lewis, for example, has said that, you know, he called himself the, the the Emmett Till generation. Levon, you were you were you were what eleven years old when when Emmett was I was old. eleven years old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny that listening to uh, to you talk, I don't think I've ever read a book other than Jet Magazine and Life Magazine about Emmett Till, and I think that's because. I don't know why that is. Uh, the facts of the case, I, I thought I knew. In other words, he's not the first person to be killed by Southern whites, and, and certainly not the last. It's just that what his mother did made the, uh, the, uh, the case more, I guess, home to us. Because I was 11, and all of the parents that I knew that I can remember were did not want their boys out late at night because 
white people in that, and certainly in Mississippi, when they, I don't know, tasted, smelled blood in the water, you didn't know what was going to happen. And the anger that they had was what they believed to be true was that Emmett Till had said something to this white woman. Um, as if that was the important thing to them, that he said something. And what was important to the parents around me was that we'd be off the street in a way because white people would, there was bloodlust. Um, and so from then on, I was associated Emmett Till with one of us is going to die uh, that was, uh, that, that had nothing to do with it. And the other problem, the other thing was, is that I think a lot of us, I guess what happened to him was horrible, but it didn't surprise a lot of us. Uh, it was, I mean, there are bodies all over the place now, even now, but certainly then, that uh, things used to happen, nothing would be the uh, sheriff, the, uh, the FBI, or nobody would do anything. So I don't think that the murder itself was what got us all upset and wanted to do stuff later on. I think it was the fact that it was done with impunity, that the federal government took an interest in it, uh, but they have to work with the local people. And we didn't, at that time, think of anything happening. All we thought about was, we have to be safe. Um, I, I think that was, you know, so as mother showing the body and all of that, we knew about it, but, uh, and we thought that was horrible. Certainly I was 11 years old, but not unique. It's just that this was the one that got caught. The fact that Emmett was 14 years old, did that make it unique in that respect? Because typically it was adults that was getting killed. I suppose. Uh, I, it certainly made us, the parents, more careful about their children. And it certainly made us uh, more careful about being out late at night. Uh, but uh, I never thought about it in that respect because you know, I'm, I'm, 11, I'm 11 years old. All I thought about was being safe. And as I grew and, and, and you know, Emmett Till comes up uh, often and, 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 and I think correctly, uh, but back then all we thought about was that we don't want to die uh, and we don't want to be the next one that they kill. It was interesting that none of us ever believed that Emmett Till said a word to her. Even then, mm. we didn't believe it um, because in the South, you knew to stay away from white people by that age. You knew. And certainly where he was up in the Delta, you knew that you didn't say anything to these people. Now, maybe he didn't, maybe he did, but we never believed that. It was to us, it was just another murder of a black kid. And, and, and kids did get killed. Um, and, and kids did disappear. Uh, so it was not, when a white person looked at Emmett Till, he saw an adult. When he looked at me, that's what he saw. Mm. So, and, and he knew that nothing was going to happen to them if they attacked. We felt that anyway. Because I think that people, uh, the reason it gave rise to the movement was the way it was handled by the mother. Mm -hmm. That she wanted to see she wanted us all to see what had been done to her kid. And she made it a kid uh, as opposed to another black kid. It was a, a black person. It was a kid that they did all of this to. And they made up the story that so they could do that. But people had been lynched, murdered. Uh, it was not, that's not, that wasn't a unique part. It was what the mother did. My work has taken me to a lot of places and I've been fortunate to meet some incredible people. But when I came to Selma and met Joanne Blackman Bland, I knew I was in the presence of greatness. Joanne was 11 years old when she was attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday in 1965. She wasn't old enough to vote, but understood its importance enough to be there. 
After Selma is an in-depth look at how our right to vote has eroded since the signing of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the fight for the right to vote continues. Get informed. You can find After Selma on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. So, Jeffrey, LeVon brings up a, uh, a particular point of they didn't even think that he said anything to her. And that's always been kind of the central controversy. It doesn't justify it, of course. But did he grab her? You know, obviously there's this you know, salacious, you know, what she says on the stand, not necessarily in front of the jury. But that's in the trial transcripts is, you know, practically you know, sexual assault. But uh, so did he say anything or was it just really the wolf whistle when she came off out the door? Well, and, and you're correct, certainly, that it was important to the defense to create this scenario of him being, and she even referred to him in her testimony as a Negro man. I think that was definitely something her attorneys told her to say, to, to refer to him as a man, because there was nothing that would have triggered a, a, an all-white jury to uh, come back with an acquittal more quickly than any sexual impropriety between a, a black man and a white woman. And they would consider anything sexual impropriety, whether it was just a look, um, any, a smile, anything. And so by referring to him as a man, they had to just bury this fact that he was a child. And so that was the, that, that was very important to that. But as far as whether he said anything or to her, I mean, just what his cousin said is that, you know, he, his cousin um, Wheeler and Simeon and also uh, Maurice Wright uh, all said that when he came, you know, he was in the store by himself for a little bit, not very long. So, um, you know, don't really know what happened then. There's, there's her version of that, which we know she was, you know, lying to some degree, if not the whole thing. But his cousin said that when he left the store, he smiled and waved and said, bye, kind of funny. He didn't say bye, ma'am. That that upset her and that she, as she walked towards the car, he whistled at her. And that scared them all and they got in the car. Wheeler Parker said that on the way back to the right home Emmett said oh please don't tell Uncle Mose and he but he was from the north and so he wouldn't have really known I mean he his personality was such that he was just kind of a fun-loving kind that liked to show off his cousins have, have said that a lot and so he wouldn't have known even though his mother gave him told him how to act in the south you know for a 14 year old that wasn't raised having that idea ingrained in him from birth on you know, in, in the moment of being around his friends and stuff, he would have, like any 14-year-old, wouldn't have thought about much about that and thought, oh, this is going to be fine. Um, especially if others were kind of egging him on, which is what, um, not, and not egging him on. There's different versions of that as well. But Wheeler just said that, you know, uh, he told a few reporters that um, some older boy there, he didn't identify who he was, uh, said, hey, there's a they were talking about girls, obviously, that sets the context. And uh, some older boy there said, oh, there's a, there's a pretty girl in the story, you ought to go in and talk to her. That's something Wheeler Parker told Jet Magazine and a few other, the black press as well as the northern white press, like the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times and that. So we kind of get an idea that he did talk, but it wasn't anything that anybody would ever think was unless you were in the South, whatever think was salacious or uh, a flirtation, really, even anything serious. But, e but even the fact that they would say, girl, uh, there were some uh, interpretations that he might not have even known because she's, you know, Carolyn Bryant was so petite that he might have mistaken her for, you know, a, a young teenager. Yeah, there's, I, I don't think anybody would have, I don't think he had any idea. I don't think anybody said, oh, there's a, a married woman in there, go flirt with her or anything like that. And she was very, and she was just 21. So I think he just saw her as a teenage girl and being from the North, a teenage boy talking to a teenage girl yeah. and not even flirting with her or saying anything inappropriate was not, wouldn't have even seemed like bad to him. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that, that, 
uh, did you find anywhere that uh, she was, my always got the feeling that she was uh, caught or, 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 or her, her boyfriend or husband or suspected that she had done something with him, either smiled or uh, came on to him or whatever, and being caught at it, she started making up lies. I, I, the only time I've heard anything like that was, I think it was um, a woman, I think she just died recently, Peggy Morgan, uh, who said that her father had claimed to have had like an affair with Carolyn Bryant and that she was known to uh, be with other men, but I'm not sure how, I don't know, you know, and, and so I think some people have maybe drawn from that, that maybe she was f flirting with Emmett or something right. like that. But I, I don't know of any sources that really are credible. I mean, that, that's certainly, you know, a possibility if the evidence is there. I, but I, I just haven't heard it from any, any source that I could, that I, you know, could really count on or, or right. use or anything like that. So the story of Emmett Till is, is that, that most people are familiar with comes from Look Magazine. Right. And uh, this, this William Bradford Huey, who paid for these, the, the stories themselves. I mean, there's, this, there's these, all these sort of massive conflicts of interest to begin with, but then he rewrites the entire narrative to because he can't get the actual testimonies from you know the you know, release forms from other people who are actually involved in the murder. So because it wasn't just these two guys, J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant. Right. Uh, and so the story that most people hear is, is what? How does that usually transpire? What, 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 what's the classic thing that you always hear from people? Well, you just hear that um, J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, the two that were tried for the murder, were the only two that were involved, that they picked up Emmett Till, uh, kidnapped him, uh, took him to Milam's home in the back of his home and beat him in a shed there and then took him to the river, uh, shot him and then threw him in the river and that during that whole time Emmett was very was was not afraid stood up to them talked back to them and that angered them and so it's their version is they acted alone Emmett was uh being um what's the what's the word uh, uppity. Just, uppity I guess yeah uppity and not staying in his place and that that gave them a justification so them telling that any southern white southerner who would have read that story would have felt they were justified in killing him, or at least most would have. I mean, that was just, that was why they were, you know, they were defended uh, by so many people prior to the trial, why the, the, the money jars were put in the stores because people weren't so much concerned that they were going to trial and, and were innocent. They were concerned that they would go to trial and be convicted, and that would be the beginning, the domino effect on the Southern way of life. Right. that convict them and there was there are enough letters written to the defense by concerned citizens from the north and south saying if you convict those men then we'll start seeing uh blacks and whites dating here or in the south just like we see in the north and then segregation will end and you'll become another chicago so that was their concern it wasn't these guys were innocent it was it was the southern way of life that they yeah were, it was just the white southern way of life to them, it was worth the cost of, of having a child murdered and the men get away with it, then lose their way of life. And that's not an exaggeration. That's what the, the people were saying. Well, and, and this is, so a little historical context, uh, Levon, you can help you know, fill in some of this particularly, is, is in, you have Brown versus Board in 1954, and then you have um, Judge Brady with Black Monday these stump speeches and things that he's giving in essence a stump speech but uh well he's it turns into a book and this is this this book black monday really riles up the south uh, in particular mississippi and here you have this is this about about misogyny you know misogynation and that you know the north is going to take over they're going to end our southern way of life so this anger is really really brought to the forefront not that that wasn't always there but in particular, and in, in, in leading up to this summer, 
South, white Southerners seem to be on a tear. I'm trying to remember if this was before or it came later that the, the Northern politicians uh, gave in to the Southern politicians so that they would get their votes. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to remember. The, the Southerners uh, were what they always were. And the Northerners that agreed with them were what they always were. Um, but at some point, they decided to leave the South alone because the South carried X number of votes. And they didn't want to come right out and say they, meaning the Northern politicians, didn't want to come out and say that they believed in um, uh, uh, racism and, and miscegenation and all that. But they did come out with states' rights. The North was started the whole idea of states' rights. And the Southerners took up on that and said, that means we can do what we want to do. And the Northern politicians said, well, that's right. You run your own business and we'll run ours. And there were a few people in the North who uh, said, well, that's wrong, but that's not what happened in the political system. So I was trying to remember um, when that deal was struck. Uh, that's what Johnson meant when he said, I just lost the South. Uh, when he signed the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And that was what he meant, was that the deal that they had made with the Southern Democrats was over. Right. Uh, so I don't, I don't remember. Uh, but, but as a kid, what, do you remember the atmosphere in regards to 54, 55? Yeah. The, the, the heat went up. Right. And everybody felt that uh, we were next. Yeah. You know, it was a cross between well, that's in the Delta, and they do stuff in the Delta, because we're all incidentally afraid of the Delta. Jackson, I was in Jackson, and it was supposedly a little more sane than the Delta. But the bottom line was, is that it was pretty much all the same. Everybody knew their place. So I remember the heat going up after Emmett Till was killed, particularly with young men. Uh, girls, not so much, but the young men. Uh, and... I remember, you know, interesting. I remember all of us trying to stay out of the way of white women, especially. Uh, not say anything to them, not be around them, not be alone with them. Uh, I do remember that. Mm. And, and uh, because I guess if nothing was, was done with Emmett Till getting killed, imagine what would happen if uh, it was just an ordinary killing that, you know, nothing would done, was done to people. And I think it, it, that was all that I remember, is just that that fear of you being in the house before when it was dark, that you wouldn't go out, that you didn't, well, there was nothing to do anyway, but that you didn't go out in the yard, you didn't go hang out, you didn't do anything if you were a male, because they blamed everybody for what Emmett Till had done. Mm -hmm. And they had to prove that that's the way black men were. So a lot of people ended up disappearing, but uh, you know we just we just remember fear. And there's this element, uh, Devery, that prior uh, to the NAACP and Emmett's mother, Mammy Till, uh, going to the press, that uh, Milam and Bryant were not pillars of society. Right. It, 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 but suddenly, once the South felt that they were particularly, you know, Mississippi felt that they were attacked, um, everyone started galvanizing around them. In my other life, I'm a filmmaker, and one of my more fascinating films I created is the award-winning film titled Black, White, and Us. It's about viewing racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Utah? Yeah, Utah. It just so happens to be the transracial adoption capital of the world. So what happens when white families who didn't believe racism existed anymore adopts a black child? Find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMalholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. Right. It didn't take very long either. That first few days after the murder, when you read the letters to the editors in papers and editorials by newspaper editors, they were um, saying these these men have been arrested and justice needs to be swift and um, whoever killed this 
young man, this little boy needed to pay the price. But yeah, and right away, the, the South or Mississippi, you know, they were under, they were already under so much scrutiny as it was in the aftermath of the Brown decision um, with segregation and that. And that was the big uh, uh, talk in the gubernatorial campaign. But it, the, the race was decided the day before Emmett Till went into the Bryant store. So that had been in the air with each candidate trying to out segregate the other and promising to be the bigger segregationist. So there was, everybody was worked up over segregation as it was. And so once the, they felt outsiders attacking Mississippi, then everything changed in an instant. Uh, they went from being sympathetic to Emmett Till being on his side, wanting his killers to be brought to justice, to then uh, raising money for their defense and becoming very defensive. Nothing upset them more than outside agitators and any outside you know, press uh, commenting on their way of life. They wanted to be left alone and that, that bothered them so much. And again, they saw the slippery slope. That's what kind of created that whole idea of if you convict these men, then we're gonna lose our way of life. So yeah, so that, and you really see it, you know, it's not, not something that historians have had to, to look back all these years later and say, yeah, the tide turned. It was obvious to people right then. People were writing in the papers almost immediately how the tide had turned against Emmett Till in an instant over that criticism. Yeah, but there were, there were people in particular, TRM Howard, who understood that this narrative that was going to be told that what was going to happen in court clearly wasn't going to be to the benefit of African Americans. And so he started doing investigations as well. And uh, that would, and, and a lot of this reporting ended up in the Chicago Defender and such as well, right? Yeah. Pitt, Pittsburgh Courier, I think, is where a lot of his stuff, uh, his investigation, his interview, interview with him about his investigation was published there. So yeah, and people, he was seen, um, people didn't like him in, in Mississippi either because he was everything they thought a black person should not be. Um, Well-educated, financially stable, in a better financial position than most whites and was outspoken for civil rights. So he had everything going against him from the white person's perspective in the South. They wanted him dead, you know, and he was a marked man. He had to move to Chicago because uh, after in the aftermath of the Till case and just in I think it was in March of 56 that he moved to Chicago and left the South because you know he was in danger. So I I, I, I kind of see some parallels here taking place in regards to to Emmett Till that suddenly when it's not going to look good for whites that we're going to change the narrative and go on the and go on the attack blame the victims if you will which yeah. is really what happened to Emmett Till was they started blaming him for his own death. You know, well, you know, he shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have done that. He should have known better. Uh, they were even raising questions about, um, you know, did he get in trouble in Chicago? Right. And why would it, why would his mother have to warn him about not being, you know, about, you know, about be, uh, you know, not being smart uh, to people in Mississippi, particularly white people. And that if you have to, you know, get on the ground and grovel, you know, Basically, yeah. so they were like, you know, they're raising these questions about his integrity, which is always seems to be happening. It was, well, maybe, maybe he was doing drugs, maybe this, maybe that, you know, when, when we talk about people, African-Americans who get killed today. So someone gets shot by the police and suddenly they have to question this, you know, the, the victim's background as if that's justification for why the police would have killed him. So there was this justification for why they would have killed Emmett Till. And you see that this, this happens time and time again, this, this, we see everything that we hear today happening then right without exception even the accusations that oh if it had been a white person we wouldn't have heard one thing about it you know you hear that one now right and which wasn't true you know and these cases make the paper but you know then there's the complexities behind that as far as systemic issues that raise attention in a different way as opposed to local matters that where attention is or justice is swift you know, it doesn't need the protests in the same way because you're protesting the lack of justice. And when justice is swift in the case of a white person being killed, it doesn't need that attention, you know, mm -hmm. it's being taken care of. Um, 
So, and, and that's what we saw back then too, people, because around the same time as the Emmett Till murder, uh, there was uh, some uh, three white boys that were murdered. And I don't remember, I don't even know if the, if the person who killed him was black. I don't even think that was the issue. Um, but people were complaining, oh, where's the outrage over this? And there was plenty of outrage. Right. Um, but that's what we hear now. People make that assumption because they need to create a certain narrative and they need to create a myth around it that they can hold to cling to. So the, so the narrative of Emmett Till, once they set that narrative in place, that even the authorities, Sheriff Strider, starts to change his story to match that story. Because um, when, when they pulled Emmett Till from the river, he immediately identifies Emmett Till as African-American and signs the, you know, the death warrant, you know, the death certificate as such. Um, but then suddenly his story starts to change. Even on the stand, his story doesn't match what he actually had, you know, had, had set forth when they pulled Emmett Till's body from the river. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? It's really the most bizarre part of this case in so many ways, because yes, when the day the body is identified, he states to the press that, you know, it was an African-American male, looks like he'd been in the river for about two days. He put a pencil uh, in the hole in the head to determine, yes, it was, he was, it was a bullet hole. He turned the body over to a um, African-American mortician, and he took Moses Wright's word for it when he came and identified the body. And then had the family, you know, he tried to get the family to bury, well, he ordered basically the family to bury the body within three hours of discovery. So he turned it over to them. It's going to be buried at Moses Wright's church. They had the grave dug and were holding a funeral when the deputy sheriff of LaFleur County came out with another uncle of Emmett Till and said, stop this the mother wants the body sent home and and as you said he signed sheriff strider signed the death certificate so everything on the day of when everything's freshest in their mind it's emmett till and there's no controversy about that the day emmett till is buried that following tuesday um well, sheriff strider starts telling the press look like you've been in the river for i can't remember if it was nothing a something that's far too long for it to have been Emmett Till because he'd only been missing a few days. He said the body was as white as I am when they pulled it out of the river. I, I don't know if it was African-American. I don't even know if it was male. And, um, and, and he thought, and he was starting this idea this, that Emmett Till was even still alive, that the whole thing had been a hoax concocted by the NAACP. Well, that, that T.R.M. Howard would have had because because he was a doctor could have provided a body to put right yeah so that was and that they put the ring on the finger that moses wright identified as being emma till's ring that it belonged to emma till's father that emma was wearing and so and that's such a bizarre thing he doesn't explain ever how he went from what he said on the day of he acts like he acted like that was just he, he didn't even indicate or admit that he changed his story he just said you know, that body was as white as I am, and he's been in the river too long, and, and Emmett Till's still alive. And the crazy thing about that is, you know, also is if he's, if he's the sheriff of Tallahatchie County, there was a body that they pulled from the river, and he's content to just let it stay buried up in Chicago. He doesn't ask for it back so he could try to, you know, if, if there was another murder in his community, you know, without the body, he's never going to be able to know who that was. He doesn't care. He just lets the body stay there. So how you can even take him seriously is just beyond me. I mean, that was just the craziest thing. And when he's asked about it at the trial, he denies, you know, he said, I signed the death certificate, but it was, he signed it in blank or something like that. Uh, but, you, you know, you see the death certificate. He, it's filled out by him. And he, he, he says it was Emmett Till. He died by a bullet or an ax. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he later on, you know, when he was changing his story, he said he didn't even know if it had been killed by a bullet, if it had been killed at all. Uh, it was just somebody they threw in there. And so all this stuff that was just made no sense whatsoever, but it's stuff that he got away with. An Ordinary Hero was my first award-winning documentary. 
It's about the life of my mother, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and her participation in the civil rights movement. For most of us, our mothers are heroes because they're mothers, and mom is just mom. But when your mother's a civil rights icon, and yet you never really knew it, things change. Go check out An Ordinary Hero and find out how choosing to do what was right instead of what was easy helped change the world. You can find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. Well, the thing is, though, if you think about it a minute, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know who it was, but I know that somebody had a conversation with him that told him, you're the sheriff, and you want to continue being the sheriff, here's what you do. So you deny, uh, you, you muddy the water at least about this what being Emmett Till or not Emmett Till. We don't want the body back here. We don't want it. We don't, uh, we don't, we don't want anybody else investigating this crime. Uh, here's what's going to happen at the trial. So the sheriffs of those counties held their position at the, at the pleasure of other people. And all it did, all that happened, all that I saw, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened, but all that I saw was he was told what to say, he was told what to do, and his first response was to act as a sheriff. His second response was to ask as a white member of society. And that's what he did. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, we see a lot of that going on now. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I'll tell the story, you figure out if I'm right or wrong. And it, it, it matters more that, that we think that he was wrong than it does uh, anybody that uh, we think he was wrong than, than the, uh, the people that he was working for, that the Citizens Council or the members of the community that he worked for. So I think he knew what he was doing. I think all the confusion, it confuses us because it's not, it doesn't sound like the same guy, but nobody had gotten to him and told him what to say. And that's what he did on the witness stand. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's when I say it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to us or, or rational people who are interested in justice or are looking at it from, from the, from that standpoint, but in the South at the time and with him, you know, he was, you couldn't succeed succeed yourself in office. So, and he was leaving office in a couple of months. He had already, there had already been an election and he was leaving, but he had other, you know, aspirations. He, he ran for state Senate down the road and he became, so he had other plans and he could run again in four years. So it would have been the same thing if he, if he would have testified for the prosecution, his political career would have been over. And there was all that pressure from the citizens councils. And plus he was one who was angry over the way the South had been attacked as well, or Mississippi. And, and that, uh, that had a, played a role in that too. Yeah. Well, and we do know that where, that he actually helped uh, select the, the, uh, the jury members. Um, I know that, well, I don't know that you mean like the, the well the, the the panel that they chose him from or the jury itself or yeah I know Jerry Mitchell had mentioned something about that that he was involved in in selecting the jury and I don't know if that meant the panel or the jury itself I'm that I don't I don't remember coming across anything like that okay I know that, that when they were questioned well one thing when they were when the jury was panel was questioned and they were took that day and a half to select the jury. Um, the the prosecution was trying to find people who didn't know. They went out of their way to find people who didn't know Milam and Bryant. Right. The defense thought that was a perfect strategy for them because people who know knew them didn't like them. Right. And they'd been had trouble with them. You know, they they were considered what they were called what was called Peckerwoods, who was just a lower class of kind of of white people. Right. And so most whites in the certain section of Tallahatchie County, I guess the, the hill country, hill count part of the county, um, didn't like them. And so they're the ones that the prosecution tried to stay away from. And so the defense sat back and thought, huh, perfect strategy for us. So they kind of let them do that. Now, I think the defense 
um, may have objected to some others that they thought would um, people who did know Milan and Bryant or something like that to, to in case that was overlooked somehow by the prosecution. So I think they were happy with the way the prosecution was doing it and they didn't let them in on that because they, they knew that they were playing right into their hands. But I'm not aware of Strider having played a role. Because the sheriff, unless he was doing some things behind the scenes, okay. but the sheriff in the courtroom wasn't involved in that. Well, but you do have a, a panel, a, a jury that is selected at this point that becomes... Uh, you know, you would consider probably more blue collar, if you will, than professionals, because a lot of the professionals would have been able to get off of jury duty to begin with. And so you have a group of people that are uh, feeling, um, well, let's just be honest, that are probably racist to begin with, and that feel that, you know, blacks are moving too far and, you know, and wanting their rights and these sort of things. And so, uh, and that they want to reset the status quo, you know, you know, you know, maintain the status quo, reset, you know, reset things from Brown versus Board. And that this is, if there's one way for them to do this in their lives, this is the way to do it. It's, it's through this trial. At least they, they can get a little something out of it. And not that a jury would have ever convicted Milo and Bryant at that time anyway, but Emmett Till's murder came really at the worst possible time because everybody was so upset over Brown and uh, the backlash with the formation of the citizens councils. And they were very strong in all 65 counties of the state, the governor's race that promised to keep segregation alive forever. That got people worked up. And so yeah. even though jury members, you know, were already had all that stuff in their head before they ever were chosen. And the ones that were weeded out were, you know, weeded out because they, you know, they asked them if they gave to the to the defense money jars, if they were related to them, all that stuff. But the one thing they couldn't help with any white person was that they'd seen all this anti-segregation stuff flare up and they were, their blood was boiling over that. So they already had that going against Emmett Till from day one. Want a great way to help a worthy organization and educate children about the civil rights movement? Visit our foundation, the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, at thejtmfoundation.org. That's thejtmfoundation.org. We are a 501c3 established to help end racism through education. A $5 monthly recurring donation will provide curriculum for 30 students. As my mother used to say, I can't do everything, but I can do something, because doing nothing is not an option. If you have wanted to help in this cause, but didn't know how, now you can. The Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org. You say something interesting that they already had it in their head. And in this day and age, uh, a lot of people, white people still have that in their head and all they needed was something to light that fire uh, to, you know, to really just be open about it. And I, I don't know if in the South at that time, people were necessarily like, not everyone was out there, you know, obviously beating people and so forth, beating African-Americans, uh, but they were definitely, you know, had racist tendencies. But suddenly when you had this, this flare up and it became okay, if you will, because the press, the politicians, everything else is going on, that now suddenly uh, people are a little more, a little more open to going around and beating people and pulling them off the streets, you know, like, like the fears that were very real that Levon that you talk about, right. um, that wasn't necessarily every single day someone was walking around beating somebody. Right. Now, what were these outside agitators and everything else? Everyone was really on the edge. And that, we're not too far removed from that, from what we see going on today. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Levon. Well, no, not, well, because it, it goes on today because, They've given. They've been given permission to come out of hiding. Right. So people are doing a lot of the stuff that they did back in the day, or that they wanted to do, or that they felt they didn't have to do because, uh, you know, we knew our place. The black person knew his place, and they only had to deal with the ones who got out of hand, or they had to do enough 
to make an example of those people. But they've been given, all of those kinds of people have been given permission to come out of the, their, their hiding places because people of color are now demanding things from them. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've come out of the, their hole, whatever they were, but they've been told to do that. Just like they've been told by the, the, the people back in the day were the citizens' councils, they were not denying that any of this went on. You know, the, you have the, the, the clan would meet and they would have their thing, but they were talking to the members of the citizens' council. They were the same people. So that's all that's happening now is that the people are being told, well, they don't have to be told, the people are being encouraged to fight for their rights, to fight for their way of life, right. to fight for states' rights. Well, we're, what we're seeing, Levon, like right now, I mean, the, when, the, when the president of the United States says uh, to suburban housewives, Oh yeah, you know there's the the fear that they're gonna you know Biden is gonna ruin suburbia for you, which is translation that you know people of color are gonna invade your neighborhoods. Well, in case and, and in case they missed it, he was gonna put uh, uh, what's his name in charge. There was gonna be uh, oh. Booker uh, Booker uh, Booker was gonna be in charge of them. Right. So they to make sure they got that message. Right. Right. Uh, to have him. Not black, people, the, black people are going to take over is, is the fear. That, that's all he's saying. Which is what was happening in 55, was the fear coming back right. with Brown versus Board, right? Right. Nation, all this sort of stuff. Black people are going to take right. over. I mean, the parallels are eerie, you know, so it's... Yeah. It's, the fear has always been that the black person is going to do what the white person has been doing. Right. They don't realize that's what they're doing, but that's, that's always been their fear. And that's always what they bring up. They bring up miscegenation. They bring, well, you need two to do that. Right. It's not rape. Miscegenation is not rape. So, and you can't go to bed. So if it's not rape, you're not going to be in bed with a white woman without her permission. But they, 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 they get so angry. They get so worked up about it. They, it just goes away. Mm-hmm. So they decide that we, the black guy, is going to do all the things that they did. And then what they do is all right. And that's what's going on now. We have the president that says you can't vote uh, by mail. Uh, Meanwhile, the same guy says, send me a ballot ballot so I can vote by mail. Right. Send my family a ballot. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that's what people are buying. Yeah. And it's interesting, Devery, thinking about um, the system that's in place is that the reinforcement that takes place. So, so in during the trial, we do know that um, a, a cross was burned at the hotel uh, where the jury was sequestered. And then the White Citizens Council, I believe it was White Citizens Council, was the ones that actually visited the jury uh, and kind of, you know, asked them how they were going to vote, or at least, you know, encouraged them and how they should vote. Yeah. Um, Very tampering is what's going on. It's basically, you know. Yeah. So they were, they knew that they were expected to vote a certain way. And the cross burning certainly was a way to scare that into them. One thing that I learned recently in talking to a grandson of one of the jurors is that even though they were sequestered, uh, they were able to hear things going on across the street that their windows were open and the and the courthouse windows were open, like moments where they were, I'd have to refresh myself on the interview um, that I had with this guy recently. But he told me his grandfather was able to hear things, not so much from the citizens councils members. I mean, they may have come over and done as um, Steve Whitaker learned doing his thesis, but they were able to hear things, you know, so, so there was that intimidation that came from the citizens council and then the what they were supposed to what was supposed to be kept from them so that they would be a fair jury was not kept from them so well because they were hearing things going on from either the attorney's office or the courtroom right um, i think they said he said they could hear stuff being talked about in the attorney's office that maybe those windows were open for a reason 
Mm -hmm. Maybe that was their way the attorneys were trying to get them. That was some deal they'd had arranged or they knew they were supposed to do that or whatever. But that his grandfather actually, you know, heard things the jury wasn't supposed to hear to keep them impartial. Wow. So it was all this stuff that was going on there. And so, yeah, it, it, the, the, the system there and the way it was set up and, and, and I'm sure typical was that this jury wasn't going to be fair and that, you know, that, so it was perfectly set up for the citizens councils to come along and intimidate. And maybe they didn't even have to intimidate. Maybe they knew what side to, to vote on from the beginning and they just had to get a reminder from citizens council members. I don't know, but whatever happened, it was a quick acquittal. I, mean, I think that, I think that's important. The, the, it was a reminder more than, than an order because people already believed they wanted to do what was right for their society, the, the white society. They wanted to do that anyway. They were just looking for a way to do it. And many of them, I, I, I wasn't in the room, but I think some of them might have been torn one way or the other. And, and what they heard was a, a way of telling them, you do the right thing here. Right. Because don't forget that they've been told all, every day of their life that their way of life is being threatened. Whether they thought it was wrong or not, to do what they did to Emmett Till is irrelevant. If they felt that their way of life, that their, I don't know, their rights were being trampled. So for those few, two or three, who felt that they needed to do the right thing, if you leave the window open, the council talks, the judges talks, the lawyers talk, well, when they walk into court the next day, they've been given their marching instructions. Not only that, it gives the those in the room, it allows them the ability to say, you know, you know what to do here. Right. So it, it, it. Well, it's, well, it's interesting, Levant, because you say, you know, um, they might know the right thing to do, but they're going to follow what society expects them to do. And Devery, I think later on, we found out that well, I mean, you, we, I mean, I didn't find anything out and you found out or someone found out that, um, really what was going on was, was that the jury really knew that these guys were guilty. There wasn't any question of, of their guilt. They just needed an out so that they didn't have to convict them. At the end, maybe this wasn't Emmett Till's body. And, you know, the whole thing with Carolyn, of course. Now, what Carolyn had to say, the jury never heard, although they actually did hear it because the defense attorneys had spread it in the paper just the day before the trial began. Yeah, and during the recess of the opening day of trial. Right, right. But, but then, so the jury, even though they might have, you know, believed that these two were, were guilty, clearly they were looking for a way to get out of actually having to prosecute them, to convict them of, of, of his murder. And the out was this idea that Strider had, you know, well, hey, who knows? Maybe it wasn't Emmett Till's body. We just really don't know and, and so forth. So... The system was making sure that they, uh, they didn't have to prosecute him. Thank you for joining us on episode one of The Lynching of Emmett Till. To listen to the entire episode uncut, please join us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Please join us for part two of The Lynching of Emmett Till as we continue our conversation with author Devery Anderson. And don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.